0: Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, joined by Megan Day. Hi, Megan.
1: Hi, Micah. How's it going?
0: It's going well. So today we are talking about the lying media, the failing mainstream media, the very sad mainstream media and what it means for our failing and sad society.
1: I mean, I think it's interesting that you put it that way because we did talk about this with Victor. The Victor Picard is the, is the interview guest of this episode and he wrote a book called Democracy Without Journalism Question Mark. And you know, he's sort of making a left defense of journalism, not of the media as it currently exists, but of journalism as a public service and a public good that ought to be publicly funded and publicly controlled. Um, which makes him a perfect guest for this show, where we believe that about a lot of different things. Um, But yeah, I mean, we do have to tackle the problem on the left, which is that the media has done us wrong over and over. The mainstream media has certainly not treated us well. And so, you know, I think the people on the left are a little bit annoyed by... The thin, whatever colored line. The idea that the press, democracy dies in darkness. All of that. All of that kind of um, the the press or the true heroes stuff that has happened in response to Donald Trump's anti press crusade. Um, and obviously, we just need to forge our own path. I mean, we can't we can't end up siding with people who are actually cheering on the collapse of journalism, which is a really critical and important pillar of a functioning society. We have to figure out how the left ought to. Really to the question of journalism. And I think Victor really uh, helps us think through that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on this question, which you'll hear in the interview itself. I mean, on the one hand, I have no love for the mainstream media and came up in left politics at a time, which as Victor also mentions, this is sort of like knee-jerk leftist, you know, anarchist-y, like, you know, Burned down the media. He mentions indie media, the indie media movement that came up around the anti-globalization movement in the 90s and 2000s. I That was how I got my start writing for uh, a small indie media website in Western Michigan called Media Mouse, which no longer exists. Um, and, and, you know, that whole approach is just of 100% hostility towards uh mainstream media uh because of the role that they play in in propping up you know the pillars of capital society uh, and u.s empire Uh, but on the other hand the last decade two decades several decades in america show that when mainstream media is crumbling that that doesn't it's not like that somehow opens up automatically some new paths for genuine, you know, media that genuinely serves working-class people's needs to emerge. In fact, we've seen the opposite during that time. We see that moving into that void are, you know, the Breitbarts and uh, the far-right media sources that have really declared war on the idea of, like, fact itself. Uh, And that's been central to Donald Trump's rise. uh, And, you know, not to mention, of course, that they... instead of like reporting they're like you know it's just openly racist and anti-semitic etc cetera, etc cetera, content so uh that is what has been wrought so far as a result of the uh slow motion collapse of american journalism and that's not pretty and so we need to have an alternative to that and i think victor lays that out pretty well in this conversation
1: right and i think that with trump leaving the White House. Uh, a lot of liberals are seem to be enthusiastic about a return to normalcy with regards to journalism and the and the press but i think victor's right that the problems uh, in American journalism far predate Trump. And in fact, he identifies those problems as being a major source of Trump's strength and power leading up to the 2016 election. Um, so they're going to they're gonna stick with us. And so I think that what he's trying to do is raise our expectations beyond what the sort of liberal hope is. The liberals, liberals are hoping that we can go back to just like um, cherishing and respecting the New York Times and the Washington Post. Our hopes should be much higher um, and much and much more ambitious than that. So without further ado, let's just get into the episode and hear um, you know hear what we ought to do about journalism from Victor Picard.
0: So Victor Picard is a professor of communications at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of several books including the one that we talk about here, Democracy Without Journalism. So here's our conversation with Victor.
1: Hey Victor, um, thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So I really enjoyed your book, and and I want to dive into all of the questions and all of the implications. But first, let's start with something that you wrote in the introduction. You wrote in your discussion of how the media ecosystem helped deliver uh, President Trump to us. You identify several failures on the part of the U.S. media. You include in these the media's drive for profit um, the circulation of misinformation on social media, and what you call the slow but sure structural collapse of professional journalism and your book argues that these were problems before Trump, and they 'll be problems after he 's gone um, but that that I think stands actually in stark contrast to a, a liberal narrative that trump. It's like Trump against the press, which he disrespects and he encourages his supporters to disrespect. And then now that Trump's gone, liberals are sort of expecting a restoration of trust in and respect for journalism once he leaves the White House. But first, I want to go through this list of problems that you identify just to set the stage.
2: As you note, our problems certainly did not begin uh, with Donald Trump, but the run up to the 2016 election, revealed a number of deep structural pathologies in our news and information systems. And some of them were quite visible. I think if we look to, for example, cable news television coverage, uh, where Trump was being covered constantly, um, this was very clearly a, a problem. And I often trot out that infamous quote by the now disgraced CBS CEO, Les Movies, who said about this constant coverage of Trump that it might not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Uh, that was an exact quote. I almost use that as the title of my book, but my editor talked me out of it. Um, but I think that just speaks volumes as to what's so deeply wrong with so much of our media system, that these commercial values, these p- profit imperatives will always trump democratic concerns. Can
0: I just say about that quickly, Victor, that that's a
2: funny quote,
0: given that it's so similar, but the inverse of another famous quote from mid-century America about what's good for GM is good for America, where it was seen as like the interests of the country were lined up with the interests of industry. And with the question of the media and and covering someone like Trump, it's the exact opposite.
2: That's right. I guess you could say they don't even try to pretend anymore uh, that it's good for most of, of of society, but, but it's, it's, it's damn good for their profit margins. And the tendency, the liberal narrative, as we were discussing earlier, is to see this as a recent phenomenon. But one of the arguments that I'm making again and again throughout all of my work, but especially in this recent book, is that these problems did not just begin with Trump. Trump is a symptom, not a cause of these deep longstanding uh, varieties of institutional rot uh, across all of our core systems and infrastructures, but I'd say particularly our news and information systems. And so I use that in the opening of my book to try to draw attention um, to these problems and to set the stage for systemic and structural reform, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into later. But the less visible structural problem in our news and information systems that is slowly getting more attention is this collapse of commercial journalism. Um, And I mean, just there's so many horrific statistics I could trot out. But one I'll I'll just mention is that since the early 2000s, the newspaper industry has lost over half of its employees so that local news media in particular has been utterly devastated. And again, this predated Trump, this predated the internet. There's a kind of lazy narrative that the internet broke journalism. But it really traces back to the dawn of the commercialization of the press um, that pegged our journalism to advertising revenues. And as readers, as advertisers migrated to the web, uh, what had always been a kind of unholy marriage of convenience. Advertisers never really cared that much whether they were supporting local journalism, uh, but they were trying to reach audiences. And the best way to do that was to advertise through local newspapers, which had monopolies in their given markets. And you see this throughout the 150 years of, of the commercial press. You see these crisis moments where there's public reaction against the commercial excesses that, 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 that rise to the fore. And we can get into that, these different historical moments. We might recall that yellow journalism, also in the 1930s and 40s was a crisis moment. But certainly what we're seeing today is an existential crisis where the market is driving journalism to the ground as advertisers have moved to the web, digital advertising piece pennies to the dollar, traditional print advertising. So that business model is gone. And we really need to be talking about what's to be done about this, this problem. And I think looking at 2016, and that was also when you had this newfound appreciation of the press, you had a kind of Trump bump where people suddenly cared about the fourth estate. I thought that was a good moment to really you know, try to raise awareness about this structural collapse, this national crisis, but also as much as my book is all about doom and gloom, I, I'm weirdly optimistic because I do see this crisis as an opportunity to entirely restructure our news media system, to reimagine what journalism could and should be.
0: So I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with this narrative about the collapse of journalism. And the way that we hear about this usually is from liberal journalists who are uh You know they think that their profession uh plays a key role as a as a sort of uh guardian of democracy and a a check on on the powerful uh leftists understand that the narrative is a little more complicated than that that there is this kind of manufacturing consent role of the mainstream media i mean people like us who wanted to see bernie sanders elected president saw how uh, the mainstream media treated bernie sanders in uh, this past election including the like openly liberal media and so uh that plus you know apologetics for u.s empire and everything else that we know that the that the u.s mainstream media does uh, means that we're not too fond of them so how do you approach this question from a left perspective from a you know what what is the balance between saying that you know yes liberal journalists do have a point when they say that the media like like large you know not just independent media projects like jackman but you know washington post new york times those type of institutions do play a key role in a democracy yet on the other hand where uh, there's a little bit of a schadenfreude at seeing uh, these institutions that are, you know, off, always tamping down any kind of left critiques of American capitalism, American empire, uh, not doing too hot these days. What's the what's the proper balance of uh, those two things?
2: You've put your finger on a, a number of core tensions, and it's certainly true, especially on the left, that media criticism tends to focus on this kind of ideological uh, function that mainstream media uh, perform, that they're basically status quo defenders, that they advance the interests of, of the powerful. And, and, and this is all very true, although there is a slightly more sophisticated uh, analysis, which, uh, number one, sees our current media system as not something that's natural or inevitable but something that came about because of specific historical struggles and recognizing that we could create a different kind of system. And then to also uh, recognize that as much as it may seem that there are a number of corporate media firms that are making sure that certain stories don't get covered or they get covered in a particular way, I would actually, I mean, I think a more left critique is to really see how this is symptomatic of capitalism, of what capitalism does to a media system, um, of what commercial values do to a media system. And if you look historically, I think that that becomes more clear because you see these earlier struggles, you see glimmers of what journalism could have been, how our media system could have developed differently differently. And so that brings into focus a more structural critique that's a little less reactionary. It's a little less like uh, – it always surprises me because you would think that people on the left uh, would get this, um, you know, immediately, that it's not a a problem of a few bad journalists or a few bad media outlets. It's the system. You know, it's it's these systemic problems. Um, And therefore, we need to change that system, you know. And I've been working in the media reform movement for – many years now and I'm always surprised how often I do get hit from the left sometimes, you know, like, why are we, why do we care about these dinosaurs? Let them burn. You know, Judy Miller, enough said, you know, that's, and it's so, I mean, the run up to the Iraq war was absolutely atrocious and we should never forget that uh, the role that our media institutions played. But at the same time we need to recognize that any progressive project, whether we're talking about climate change fighting, you know, mass incarceration, gross inequalities, it's going to require a viable press system. And we also have to, and this is about jobs. It's about making sure that communities have access to news and information. Um, So, you know, I, I, but I agree with you. We have to be able to simultaneously critique the system as it is and also imagine, you know, how it could be, how we could, how we could change this. Um, and I, I think this should be a central left project. Um, and it is something that many liberals, uh, even though they often misdiagnose the problem, they care deeply about as well. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, that's what gives me some weird hope, too, is that I do think it has the potential for becoming a, a, major, a major project uh, uh, for all of us. And, and, I, and I see signs of hope here and there.
1: And one really important aspect of the sort of left defense of journalism, not defense of the current you know media system, but defense of journalism in general, is the idea that, you know people collecting factually accurate information and then delivering it to the public is actually an important public service. It's a pillar of of society, much like you know, healthcare, education, you know, uh, infrastructure. I mean, it is a form of infrastructure. It's not physical infrastructure, but it's like a form of infrastructure that's really critical to um, the functioning of society. So if that's the case, then you are arguing that we should actually provision it publicly. Of course, that makes people freak out because when people hear about you know public media in the United States, they're thinking that this is a slippery slope to totalitarianism. They're thinking, well, if we let the state you know publicly finance you know media, then they're gonna they're gonna control media and 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 so on and so forth. Um, one thing that popped into my mind when I was puzzling over this problem as I was reading your book was the um i think similar concerns during the movement to establish public a public education system in the United States. I mean, there were people who said, we can't let the state indoctrinate our children. Obviously, this was a long time ago, and the concerns were largely religious. Um, and in, in reality, we did set up a public education system, and we have fought over what should be taught in that system ever since. That's just a part of it. If you have a public system like this, then you open up you know a constant dialogue about what the content is going to be. But no, everybody at this point agrees, actually, not quite everybody, but most people agree that it's good that we have a public education system, even though we have to constantly argue over what precisely is being taught in schools. Do you see the parallel that I'm making there?
2: Absolutely. In fact, I use that parallel very often because people will say, at least implicitly, that if our local news institutions are lo- no longer profitable, that's tragic. Uh, you know, it's too bad, but there's really nothing that can be done, you know, supply and demand and the market's spoken. And, you know, we just had to find a new business model. Now, imagine if we said the same thing about our local public school, uh, you know, we don't keep it open on whether the students are, are, are paying enough. Now, granted, there, that does happen sometimes. And that's another problem. But what you're putting your finger on is just the sort of arbitrary nature in which we designate are public goods and where we draw the boundaries, and of course, like healthcare, is an even more glaring example. Um, but the things that we just assume as a natural order of things that the market should support in American society—that's half my job. Whenever I'm talking about future journalism and the and the structural journalism crisis, to try to denaturalize this, you know, to get people to think a little bit differently about journalism and to see it as an essential public service. Not as a commodity, so that's that's an essential step. And again, those of us on the left, I, I mean, it's a, this part of the argument's easier to make, but it's still surprising how um, unconsciously a lot of folks still harbor these kind of liberal, even libertarian assumptions uh, about journalism. They see it as largely as sort of an individualistic endeavor. Um, you know, journalists are these individual talents. Um, and we need to see it as, uh, you know, it's it's our problem. You know, it's it's a collective public good, uh, and we all need to work together to make this happen. And it should be universally provisioned. It should be seen as a universal service that all Americans should have access to a baseline level of news and information.
0: And So you write about there being a kind of like public option for journalism. Can you explain? what that would look like and maybe what would set it apart or make it similar to something like the BBC in the UK.
2: Sure. And I use phrases like the public option or I point to the BBC because they carry some rhetorical uh, weight. You know, it's something, you know, I'm really just trying to broaden the imagination about what's possible. Um, And so Americans tend to have warm, fuzzy feelings about the BBC um, and uh, And you know we've the, this idea of a public option has been in the discourse for a, a, at least a, a decade um, but basically the the end I, I think the ultimate objective is that every community across the country has a publicly funded locally owned news cooperative. That would be the ideal um, and then we need to think about you know how do we how do we get there so Um, Certainly, we could build on already existing public infrastructures like our public broadcasting system. One of my uh, more radical ideas, but I think very commonsensical, is to use our postal system. There's over 30,000 post offices across the United States. Those spaces could serve as community media centers and not just for news production, but also uh, local public broadband as you probably noted in my book, I'm I'm a big fan of Eric and Wright's uh, ideas of, you know, real utopias and looking at these already existing radical spaces like public libraries. So that's another potential space that we could build on to provide the local journalism that, that communities need. Um, but it's gotta be, you know, I always make the point that it's gotta be public, not just in name only, it must be publicly owned and controlled. So, All this, you know, it could be, it should be federally guaranteed as all public goods are, um, but it needs to be decentralized and and communities and journalists themselves should own and control these newsrooms.
1: And what's the problem that that this solution is attempting to address with regards to local news? Because we haven't touched on that, but I think it's important for us to dig into the issue here. I mean, there's a major collapse of local news provision in the United States,
2: right? That's right. That's where the, the market failure. Uh, which is another, uh, you know, phrase I try, that I use that I think people kind of get. Um, that's where it is most glaringly evident, this collapse of local journalism. We now have what's increasingly referred to as news deserts, where entire regions and communities lack any local news media whatsoever. We've lost over a fifth of all of our newspapers since the early 2000s. Um, and of course, this disproportionately hurts lower socioeconomic Groups. Um, A lot of this, and I'm also clear that it's not. This isn't a new phenomenon. For many of these communities, they've never been served uh, by by local journalism. Uh, There's always been a kind of news redlining uh, in effect. But so the structural proposals uh, that I'm trying to advance um, are are really addressing these gaps, these deficits. Because the bottom line is there is no commercial future for local journalism. So I'm trying to push this stark decision in front of people to say either we keep trusting the market and we write off entire communities just assuming that they don't they will not have access to any local news or inf- news and information or we find non-market means of support and the for liberals i feel like the the first instinct is to look to the nonprofit sector you know they to think that foundations philanthropists rich benefactors that's going to solve the problem and i'm i'm open minded i mean certainly uh there are many cases we can we can point to some of our favorite news outlets including jacobin is is you know supported by individual subscribers and and different kinds of individual support but to to again reach this universal service goal to make sure that everyone has access we really have to use a public a public model
1: yeah this is something that really struck me about your book is the insistence that um everybody's sort of banding together and, um, you know, taking it on from the level of the, you know, from the citizen level is not actually going to be enough. Like the idea that we're gonna do some sort of, Journalism mutual aid to overcome this problem is something that you really reject. And what you're saying is that this is gonna have to happen on a federal level. We're gonna have to have national investment in this. We're gonna have to have jobs creation programs, we're gonna have to have massive funding for new local news outlets, um, and and so on. So, can you actually talk a little bit about what some of the proposals that are common from the kind of like progressive e-corners are and what you think are, are insufficient about them?
2: Sure. So I mean, you really put your finger on it. It's not just uh, – this is where, again, we see sort of um, coming together of liberal narratives and also kind of anarchic um, uh, ideas and, and models. And, and to be clear, I don't think we need to be overly doctrinaire in, in terms of, you know, many of these – wherever mutual aid works, that's fantastic. There are – we can point to successful experiments – Uh, where they're flourishing. And even in the nonprofit sector, um, even, you know, we also should be clear that it is possible for commercial outlets to produce fantastic journalism, but that's not, these are not systemic fixes. And also any progressive project is going to be constrained uh, by those, by those, by those structural parameters. So, um, if we think beyond you know, that this isn't an individual problem, and there's actually a, a, a wonky economic term for it, which is that it's a merit good, that there are some things that, that, that people need, absolutely need, but they might not necessarily want. So it's not going to be a consumer choice. So, for example, with the collapse of the advertising revenue model – the next model was the paywall. You know, if, if advertisers aren't paying for journalism, then readers should pay for journalism. And that makes, that's, that's somewhat intuitive. That makes a lot of sense. But we know by now that readers won't support journalism to the level – individual readers won't support to the, to the level that democracies uh, require. Um, and outside of the big three newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, it's not going to support most, uh, most news outlets. Um, you get these little niche membership models that can do some fantastic stuff, but they're not going to provide, they're not going to cover all beats. They're not going to make sure that the state legislature is getting covered or city hall or the public school board. Um, so, you know, these are the, the kind of less sexy kinds of journalism. We're going to make sure, we're going to have to make sure that it is uh, financially supported in the market, individual uh, readers And rich benefactors, we cannot trust them. We cannot rely on them to provide that kind of news and information.
0: I wonder what you think about these solutions that you're proposing, a kind of rebirth of local media, publicly funding different kinds of media. To what extent will that or can that deal with one of the fundamental problems with media in the 21st century which is how many people (laughs) despise the media i mean this is obviously central to trump's uh election to the presidency right like every rally he was doing the thing where he was like turn around look at the look at those cameras in the back and you know tell tell those people how much you hate them and you know they'd boo cnn or whatever and he just mobilized on this kind of uh inchoate resentment towards the media and some of that is based on the judith miller type uh problems of media right like the the mainstream media dragged us into the war in iraq uh, but but some of it seems like it might not be addressable by traditional social democratic uh, means like creating a public option for journalism so uh what and of course like as we've mentioned to dislike the mainstream media is not a totally wrong thing given you know the, the bad stuff that, that the media does so uh, what is what is the solution to uh to that problem is it the kind of solutions that you're talking about or is it something else
2: yeah excellent question so that and that's one of the three major questions that always come up one is you know how are you going to pay for it? Two, how are you going to make sure it remains independent? Three, how are you going to make sure that people actually trust it and use it and, you know, see it as their own? Um, and I do think there's so much damage to undo and much of it's self-inflicted damage. Again, you know, what an extremely commercialized media system has done to itself, it's just debased itself for decades. Um, so there is good reason uh, to not to not always trust it. Um, however, and, and s- there's some evidence to suggest this. This is a little more the kind of speculative part uh, of, of my analysis. But I do think that, first of all, we have polling data that shows that even among conservatives who hate the media, they tend to care deeply about their local media. So there's still relatively high levels of trust in local news institutions. The second part is that when local communities are Deeply involved and engaged with their own local media, trust levels tend to go up. You know they don't see it as something as like something outside of their own daily lives. They see it as like it's their media. And I should back up for a moment. This this relates to something we were talking about earlier. But many of my earliest uh, utopian ideals about what our media could and should look like goes back to the indie media movement. That's where I sort of cut my teeth on media activism in the late '90s. And early 2000s, and if you could imagine an independent media center in every community that's fully funded, that isn't just relying on volunteer labor, um, they, that starts getting at the ideal. Um, and I do think when you have citizen, when you have local community members making their own media, uh, you know the indie media slogan was "Don't hate the media, be the media." It was very anarchic, but this is where anarchism and socialism come together, right? And I I do think that that's possible, and that would help address this problem, people just immediately hating the media if they are involved in making their own media.
1: So I heard you earlier talking about Eric Olin Wright's idea of real utopias and sort of um, creating space to build new institutions that we can then continue to fund and continue to grow that will kind of overtake um, some of the, you know, the major institutions that are riven with problems. However, we also need to uh, go on like the frontal attack against some of these institutions, right? I mean, like we have massive media monopolies, not just in traditional media, but also social media. So what do you think the, um, what do you think the agenda is with regards to, you know, the major media companies? I mean, how do we regulate them? Do we break them up? Um, What are we supposed to do?
2: I would say all of the above. I mean, we need to throw everything at them. Um, And I do think that in some cases we should break them up, especially vertically integrated uh, uh, monstrosities. Um, But at the same time, we need to be crystal clear that some of these problems are not just monopoly problems, they're capitalism problems. And that's why I'm so adamant that we need to create these structural alternatives. We need to be taking our news and media out of the market, treating them as the public goods that they are, um but uh but in the meantime there are I mean the f- problem with Fox News, I mean advertising boycotts isn't doing it. You know, p- public pressure as absolutely necessary as it is, it's insufficient. So um, you know, there's no easy answer to this. Uh, but I do think we need to get beyond these kind of libertarian assumptions that um you know that, that we should just leave this up to the market or that if government intervenes, it's some kind of violation of the First Amendment. Government is always involved. It's a question of how it should be involved. So we do need to be having those kind of policy debates as well. Um, We need to think about regulatory interventions. But ultimately, and I think history shows this, at the end of the day, we're going to need structural alternatives. We're going to have to start thinking about building new systems, especially for those of us on the left. Like our our projects, our campaigns, our our hopes for the future – We'll be doomed if we're left if if we think we're going to do this through a commercial media system. I mean, when you look at MSNBC, they have some good journalism there. They have yeah, I I watch Chris Hayes' show, but that's basically the extent to you know it's not going to go any further left than that. Like that's what we're hemmed in at, and that's simply insufficient.
1: It seems like a popular liberal reform to pursue right now is to pressure Facebook and YouTube to censor hate speech and misinformation. I'm curious where you fall in those debates. I mean, should we be empowering YouTube and Facebook to crack down on content that we consider unhealthy for public consumption, or is that a recipe for disaster for the left? Um, Personally, I'm confused. And I think that anybody who feels, who says that they have like an easy answer to this is probably not thinking through it um, clearly enough because it's not like you can just leave them alone. The fact of the matter is that if you don't touch them, if you don't regulate them, they're actually promoting misinformation and hate speech content. So there's not really a neutral position here. Um, So anyway, I'm I'm just curious what you think about it, how it fits into the other ideas in your book
2: yeah i'll be honest, I share some of your confusion. Um, I, I think this is one of the thorniest questions because you're absolutely right. We don't want them to be gatekeepers and yet we want them to take responsibility um, they're not these neutral platforms they're simply trying the earlier you know analysis that I offered about how you know the commercial press was simply about Um, selling us to advertisers. It's the same commercial logic for our social media firms. They're delivering us to advertisers or capturing our attention for advertisers. So it really is the core business model. And I think that's a starting point for for any any structural critique is to see that this is deeply ingrained, uh, stems from their core illegitimate business model. So we need to make changes there. There are, we could be looking at new public interest obligations that we used to have, like, even like the, the, you know, things for broadcasters. I'm not, you're not allowed to talk about the fairness doctrine anymore. Um, So I'm I'm hesitant to open that door. But I would say that, for example, what if we mandated that Facebook uh, privileged um, public media uh, and and information in their news feeds? Um, You know, so there are ways that we could try to structure um, the, the news and in, in, in information environment. Otherwise, I think I, some people have argued for a kind of BBC, for example, like a public service search engine. So like transition Google into like a utility or a BBC model, or I think we should keep that on the table, though we are dealing with network effects and path dependencies and all that good stuff. It's really hard to do this. But um, yeah, we need to be thinking seriously about structural regulation. And that does include, as we were saying earlier, antitrust breaking up some of these some of these monopolies.
0: I mean, it seems like this is maybe a sort of social, lazy socialist uh, response to this question because this is the socialist answer to everything. But there really is no way to do this properly as long as these are private corporations that exist to enrich a handful of capitalists. I mean, because in you know the the initial wave of Silicon Valley moguls who created these social media platforms. They have this kind of like ultra libertarian ethos. And now we've seen what that ultra libertarianism does. You know, it's, it, it gives rise to, you know, the alt right and to Donald Trump and everything else. Uh, So now there's a a somewhat of a reckoning with that reality, but there, there there's, it's a totally unaccountable way of dealing with them and it seems to be sort of done on the cheap. I mean, this is totally anecdotal, but uh, my my friend uh, Miles the other day wrote an article about QAnon for in these times magazine, and he posted a screen capture of it on his Instagram account. Uh, obviously, he's like a left journalist. He's like QAnon is bad, uh, but the Instagram uh, AI must have registered it as this kind of content that they're trying to crack down on. And so they actually banned his uh, account and he, he has had no way to get his account reinstated over what was clearly, you know, an error on the part of Instagram. And there are a million stories like this, right? And there's like no, it's, it's a total black box for how you can, you know, remedy these issues. There's, there's no like due process and you can't expect a corporation to... Ever give due process because that's the whole point about corporations under capitalism. They're there, there these like dictatorial entities that where, where the political rights that we supposedly enjoy in the rest of society all go out the window when when we're dealing under the ages of the under the corporation. So uh, I think we're going to probably see more of this in the future i mean we're gonna see as you know twitter and facebook and instagram understand that they have to do something what's gonna end up happening is they're gonna say okay well we'll make sure we get rid of the QAnon content but also like just to show that we're fair and balanced we're gonna get rid of the some of the the radical kind of which has already happened you know reddit had that whole uh period where they banned a bunch of far-right uh, subreddits, but then they also banned like the Chapo Trap House subreddit or uh, other left wing ones to show like, look, we're 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 not biased towards uh, the t- t- against the right. We're we're also we're, we're we're making sure everybody gets taken care of here, and that's like not a real way to deal with this question. I mean, not to mention that the examples like the Instagram one that I gave end up happening, or Jacobin itself. We're currently uh, repeatedly blocked from giving uh ads putting out ads on facebook uh for some reason that is not clear to us Uh, so it seems like none of these problems can really be dealt with and we can't really get a fair like due process and a, a full process that protects basic first amendment rights as long as these are done under the ages of corporations uh who have like little their their obligations only go so far insofar as we can like convince them to, uh, p- you know, please give us, so- give us something, some kind of regulation, uh, as opposed to, you know, what, what we would consider our full first amendment rights or whatever.
2: Yes, that's, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, it's uh, number one, these media firms, the, these, these platform uh, monopolies simply have too much power. And of course, we're not just talking about the power they wield within the US, but it's, it's around the globe. Indeed, much of the worst damage that they're, exacting is on other uh, countries like Myanmar and Philippines, no firm should have this much power. We have to rein it in, we have to democratize it, breaking it up, at least breaking pieces of it off, uh, you know, is, is a, a first step. Um, but uh, but we, we need to try to both, and this is where the Eric Olin Wright uh, approach will be good, where, you know, in some ways, we need to smash it to the extent that we can but also try to build in more radical spaces within it, public pressure will never be enough because this is in their DNA. They're trying to make as much money as lawfully possible. And so they're going to keep creating all these social harms and and negative externalities. um, And we're going to keep attacking the symptoms and never get at the core root of the problem. So that's, that's what we have to do.
0: You mentioned your openness to some kind of antitrust regulation breaking up some of these firms. I I wonder if you could speak more about that. In general, at Jacobin, we tend to be a little skeptical of anti-monopoly politics in general. Uh, We think that it just seems like, a oh, yeah, well, if something is big, then it's bad, so we should get rid of it, Uh, which is not really a properly socialist take- Uh, given that uh, we we should we should like big things we just want them like under democratic control and existing to uh, serve human need rather than uh, corporate profit in fact when things are bigger they are often better able to serve human need and I I find it hard to see how you know breaking Facebook up into five or six different Facebooks would uh, solve the the problem it certainly wouldn't inherently bring us closer to what we were just talking about about bringing these platforms under public control so i guess i'm interested in hearing more from you about what the 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 good left ways of doing this kind of uh anti-monopolistic uh policies towards these companies are
2: yeah so i think you put your finger on a on a core tension that doesn't receive enough uh, attention um is, the, is that, again, some of these problems aren't monopoly problems or capitalism problems. And so that's why we do need public alternatives or we need to democratize these firms. But until we nationalize Facebook um, or rather, you know, internationalize it, we could at least look at, you know, breaking up some of the, a few of the pieces. So, for example, Instagram or um, WhatsApp, um, you know, or Facebook Messenger. Like those are things that we – that an anti-monopolist uh, approach, an antitrust approach – could um, you know would help us do that, and I think that is to the good. That would cut down on some some of their some of the problems. But I also agree with you that if we simply created three or a dozen uh, social media firms, we're still going to have surveillance capitalism. We're still going to have all these social harms. Um, it doesn't get to the root of the problem. And much of the antitrust uh, discourse, as radical as it sounds, you know, they're often. Taken as the radicals in the room because they're talking about smashing them up, you know, sounds cool, um, but they're really just assuming that more competition is going to solve all of our problems. They're th- they're thinking that the market, just a few tweaks here and there, the market's going to self correct, and that's that's just that's just an incorrect uh, analysis. So um, so you're absolutely right, but I do think there is nuance. I think on the left, we can simultaneously say that curbing some of the worst excesses and, in, in, you know, cutting down um, some of their power, like, for example, forcing Google to divest YouTube. Um, those are good things that, you know, I think we can be for that and yet simultaneously say, it's not going to solve our main problems, right? Um, but we're also contending, as I mentioned in passing earlier, with, you know, network effects and path dependencies, like you can't just simply... Create a socialist uh, social media outlet. Like no one's. going I can't go take there.
0: any new outlets. None. I'm I'm maxed out right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting on TikTok. You know, I tried Snapchat for a minute. It was too much. <laughs> I, I got like three. That's the most I can do.
2: Right. So therein lies lies the problem. Right. In some cases, it's it's you know we have these structures in place. They're serving as these core infrastructures, these core information and communication infrastructures. We need them both for our political projects, but also just for democracy writ large. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to find ways of, 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 of decommodifying, you know, of, of removing these, these commercial pressures of changing the imperatives that's driving them, of democratizing them. And it's no easy task. It's a wicked problem, as they say. But uh, I think we need to devote more time and attention to it.
1: Yeah, I think you said it, Victor. The task is to uh, is merely to decommodify our news infrastructure. Um, we've got our, our work cut out for us. So we want to thank you so much for coming on today and uh, have a good one.
2: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, Subscribe to our print issue, or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.